Amen. Amen. And you may be seated. You may be seated. You know, last week we, um, we passed what some consider uh, to be the crux or the climax of the letter of James. And James unequivocally, just unapologetically made this statement. He said, faith without works is dead. And we spent some time, we spent two weeks really kind of unpacking that, making sure we understood what he meant. And in essence, what he's saying is, hey, listen, if, if you can claim to be a Christian, you can claim to follow Christ, you can claim to have faith, but if, that, if, that, if, if that's all you have and you're not pursuing Christ, submitting to Christ, submitting to his lordship, doing the will of Christ, he said, then that which you claim is really empty and worthless. It does you no good whatsoever. So what James did in chapter one and two is he laid out for us what it really looks like to have true faith. He says, it's not so much what you claim to be, it's what you show to be through your actions. And he says, a true believer in Jesus Christ, somebody that has true faith, he says, it's gonna be somebody who who considers it joy, even in the midst of some of the greatest difficulties, because they understand what those difficulties and trials and, and, and hardships are ultimately going to do inside of their life. He said, a person who has true faith is not going to be guilty of the sin of partiality, of judging people, a book by its cover, by looking their outward appearance. They're not going to do that. He said, a true believer in Jesus Christ, somebody who has true faith as well, is not going to be merely a hearer of the word, but they're going to be a doer as well. That's just some of the things that he covered in the first two chapters. But now he's going to transition. He's going to move away from what faith looks like to what faith sounds like. So from doing to really talking, uh, uh, what does faith sound like? This is interesting because he's alluded to this already twice. In 119, he said that we need to be slow to speak. In, in chapter one in verse 26, he said that we must come to the point that we are able to bridle our tongue. So he's talked a little bit about this whole issue of talking and what comes out of our mouth, but now he's gonna lay it all out. He's going to take, in fact, 12 verses to really delve deeply into this idea of the tongue and of our speech and what it ultimately conveys. This means that James really teaches more on the topic of the tongue than just about any other New Testament uh, um, writer. And he's also teaching us something else. He's saying that you know if you're born again by not only what you do, but you could tell whether you have true born again faith by what it is that comes out of your mouth. That's a huge deal. Now, the Bible says all kinds of things about the mouth, and I gotta tell you, it doesn't say a lot of good things about the mouth. In fact, the Bible says, uh, it speaks of the mouth this way, as being wicked, deceitful, perverse, filthy, corrupt, flattering, slanderous, gossiping, blasphemous, foolish, boasting, complaining, cursing, contentious, sensual, and vile. All right, so not a whole lot of good things there uh, coming out of the mouth. And it's interesting because you and I haven't committed every single sin there is to commit. And part of that reason is we, we just don't have the opportunity to do it. But every person in here has fallen in the way that we've talked and the things in which we've said. So he's gonna spend a great deal in those 12 verses really showing us the depth of sinfulness and wickedness that the mouth is capable of. But before we get there in verse two, he says something else, he throws out a warning in verse one. He throws out to this warning concerning the teachers and what specifically is coming out of their mouth. So we're gonna look at that verse one this morning. And and what I wanna do is I wanna be really, really careful. There's two things we're going to see. The first thing that we're going to look at is this. We're gonna look at the warning that he gives 
Uh, then the second thing we're going to do is he, we're going to look at the reason that he gives that warning. All right, here's the warning. What is it? What is he talking about? What is he warning against? And here is the reason for him giving that warning. Got it? Two parts. First of all, let's take a look at the warning. Verse one, he says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. And when you look at that, it seems pretty straightforward. Doesn't seem real complicated. Uh, he's basically, in essence, he's, he's talking to believers. See that my brothers there? Every time he uses the phrase my brothers, we know that he's, he's approaching and he's talking to Christians, addressing Christians. So he's letting the church know. He goes, look, not all of you should rush too hurriedly or too quickly or too hastily into a position of teaching and becoming a teacher. Now, that's plain, but what's not plain is what he means by teachers. Uh, he could mean it either in a narrow sense or a broad sense. In a narrow sense, it could be that he's suggesting that we not all become pastor teachers, elders within a church. Uh, for example, uh, Paul says that it's one of the official positions in a church, 1 Corinthians 12, 28. He says, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers. So he could be saying simply to this, to their church, he could say, hey, listen, not everybody in the congregation should become a pastor, elder, teacher, and, and fulfill that particular capacity within a church. Or he could mean it in more of a broad sense. And, and what, he mean, what I mean by broad sense is he's saying, hey, no, it's not just the pastors that he's warning. He's warning anybody that has any type of official capacity of teaching in the church at all. Small group leader, Sunday school leader, somebody that's teaching one-on-one -on -one discipleship, somebody who's teaching whatever class that's being taught within the church itself, that's who the warning's going out to. So who is it? I think all of the above. I think what he's saying is, hey, if you teach in any kind of official capacity whatsoever, what I want you to do is I'm gonna give you a warning. You are being warned not to rush too hastily into the position of a teacher. Now, the question is, why does he warn us of that? And he doesn't tell us exactly why, you know, what's, what's going on, but I think very carefully, if we remind ourselves of the context in which he's writing and who he's writing and why he's writing, I think we can kind of get some answers for why he's giving this specific warning. And, and remember, when James is writing, he's writing to whom? He's writing to, to, to Jews. And he's writing to those that had been converted and they've been scattered because of all of this persecution. So they're all over the place. And when he begins to write them, when he teaches them, these people are very Jewish, even though they're a believer, which means that when they begin to come into the church, they take all, a lot of their Jewish practices and there's a tendency for them to bring those into the New Testament church. Does that make sense? So one of the ways that they would ultimately do this is they would do it in their view of teachers. The Jewish people High view, huge view. They, they highly exhorted and appreciated teachers. They were highly esteemed. Uh, they called them rabbi, those that were in an official uh, teaching position. They called them rabbi, which literally means my great one. All right, so you can imagine already, use your imagination a little bit, how difficult and how dicey this might become when all day long, when you talk to somebody, you call them my great one right? Well, good morning, my great one. Hey, how you doing today, my great one? Hey, that's a cool looking jacket you got there, great one, right? And so you start to do that, and there's two dangers that happen when you begin to call people my great one. You know what it is? Number one, people begin to believe it, right? They sit back and they think to themselves, you know what? Matter of fact, they've said it several times. Matter of fact, I am a great one, aren't I, right? And then you have another group of people who aren't being called my great one that all of a sudden are like, I want to be called great one. Nobody's calling me great one. 
And this is what's happening in the church. All of a sudden, people are sitting there going, hey, man, I want that. I want that respect. I want that. I want people to call me and view me as this great one. So in the synagogues, they had people constantly throughout the service jumping up and saying things. Don't get any ideas, all right? Because everybody had something to say. So you can imagine, imagine this is exactly what Jesus uh, argues about. And actually, he begins to, uh, he used to condemn the Pharisees and the religious leaders for this very thing. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 5 through 6, this is what Jesus said of the religious leaders. He says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor of feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others, being called my great one. This is what they're seeking after. The rabbis had such a high view, people had such a high view of them that it was actually taught in the first century that if the enemies were to come in and take people off into captivity, then it would be your responsibility. If they took your rabbi, your mother, and your father, then it would be your responsibility to ransom first your rabbi and get him back. I mean, how does that, I mean, now it's interesting that it's the rabbis who taught this, uh, but, but I think you get the point. And so what's interesting is, I mean, feel bad for mom and dad, right? Isn't that how you feel sometimes as a mom and dad? You're like, mom and dad, I'm sorry. We know that you gave us life. Uh, you know, you burped us, you fed us, you changed our diaper. You taught us how to walk, taught us how to talk. We get all that. We thank you for all that. But you know what? There's this really cool Rabbi Hillel guy down and he has a killer Bible study on Saturday morning. So we got to rescue him, not you, right? And so, and this is kind of what was being taught. So nonetheless, it shows this high view for teachers. So it, again, it, it's not real hard to see where the problem begins to come in, right? We get into the New Testament, these Jewish people from the synagogue, a lot of them still meeting in the synagogue for their church service. They're still having this high view of teachers and everybody wants to be one, all right? Everybody wants something to say or, or, or have that particular position. So this causes two problems in this early church, all right? This is just all background information to get where we need to be, but you guys are doing good, much better in the first service. You guys must be much smarter. Anyway, and so, so two things are going on. The first thing is, is some of them are suffering from an empty head, all right? This is, this is where the problem is, everybody wanting to teach an empty head. What this means, I think James alluded to this in 119. Do you remember when he said they need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger? Why do you give a command like that when you say to be quick to hear and slow to speak? You give it to a group of people who are not quick to hear and slow to speak. They're slow to hear and they're quick to speak. So these people who want to be teachers aren't hearing the teaching of the word. They're just speaking a whole lot. So what you have is they're just basically, they feel like they have a lot to say, but they're not teaching the word of God. They're just teaching their own personal opinion, and this is a huge problem. Uh, uh, Paul actually warned First Timothy, uh, Timothy of this in 1 Timothy 1.7. Speaking of those types of people, he says this, there are those that are desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Have you ever known somebody, they are absolutely positive they know what they're talking about, and they're absolutely wrong, but they're very confident in it? Right? I know this is right. Well, you could be all confident all you want, but you're still wrong. Wrong's wrong, confident or not, right? And so these guys are getting up, and they're doing this, and they're very confident. I love what one commentator, Andrew McNabb, said. He commented, there seems to have been an eagerness on the part of many to speak in public, and a failure to recognize that the fundamental qualification for teaching is learning. In other words, you can't teach something that you don't first know. And let me, let me just say this, just kind of off the cuff here. 
a young man I knew one time said, I feel like God is calling me to preach. I said, no, he's not calling you to preach. Now, I know you're, you're like, who are you? Well, I'm, I was his pastor. Okay, that's who I was, all right? And so he goes, he goes, he goes how could you say he's calling to preach? I said, brother, I, I said, I don't know if God's calling you to preach, and here's why. I said, you hate to study. Is that true? Yeah, I hate to study, but I like to speak. Dangerous combo, all right? And I told him, I said, what is it that you feel like you're being called to preach? Not your opinion, the word, the, the word of God. You have to study the word of God diligently in order to be able to preach it. So if somebody has a desire to speak, but no desire, implanted desire of God to study the word of God, I don't like them in teaching positions, right? Because what mostly is going to happen is there's a wrong motivation for them ultimately leading and teaching. So that brings us to number two. Some of them had an empty head, all right, that, that were filling these positions. The second one, some of them, many of them had wicked hearts. Why are they doing this? Well, they're doing it for their own glory. They want to teach because they want to be respected. They want to be admired. They want to show off everything that they know. Uh, they, they, they want to be, have respect in other people's eyes. So the wrong motivation is for their ultimate glory. Now, I, I got to make sure we understand this. Because at the end of the service, uh, Chris, and he's going to shoot me if I don't tell you this, he's going to ask for more small group leaders, okay? And he goes, dude, you can't preach this message today. I need small group leaders. Everybody else is going to be like, I ain't doing that. I ain't doing that. I've been warned. There ain't no way I'm doing that. Listen, this is not for you not to be a teacher. What he's warning us for is that we teach for the right reason. We need godly, Holy Spirit-filled, trained men and women of God to teach each other. So what is the right motivation for teaching? Well, it's pretty easy, isn't it, to, to know that? If you know your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, which I imagine includes teaching, you do all for the what? For the glory of God. Not for somebody else, but for God. How does teaching and preaching that you do for other people, how does that bring glory to God? Because you have to teach people the gospel for them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. When you teach, that's what you're doing. You're, even when you're sharing the gospel, you're in a position, you're teaching somebody the truth of the gospel that they need to hear. You teach it, they come to life, God is glorified. If they're already saved, you keep teaching them, they're being transformed in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ every time that you teach, guess what? They're, they're, they're looking more like Jesus, guess what the result is? Christ is being more glorified. And that is what somebody who is in it for the right reason desires, not their own glory, not their own CD table. All right, what they're looking for is they are looking for God to be glorified. Now, that's the warning. You guys did great. That was the most boring part, all right? So you got through that, all right? Let's get to the next part. I say that. This could be pretty boring too. So just hang in there. So second thing, first thing, here's the warning. Don't be too quick to take on a position of leadership in, in teaching. Warning number two, or, or number two, here he gives the reason why. Now, what I think he's gonna do is this. I think James is going to give us this reason because what he wants us to do is he wants to wean us off and away from our ungodly desire to be recognized, all right? He's trying to wean us away from there. He's trying to sanctify any wrong motivation of us wanting to be able to teach. He's gonna wean us off by giving us this reason. Here's the reason. Why should we be slow to be a teacher, not be too presumptuous, not to run right in there, but yet to have caution when you're entering a a position of teaching? Here's why. Because of a greater judgment. Because of a greater judgment. And notice what he says. For we know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Do you see that first, first three words? For we know. 
He's saying, for we know, because what he's getting at is this. He's saying, we inherently know. This is something that everybody knows. You don't have to go to seminary or Bible college for this. Everybody knows the truth that James is trying to make right here. Here's the truth. With great authority and responsibility always comes great accountability, right? If you got a lot of power, there should be a lot of accountability that goes with that power. You with me? And and so he says, this is the way that it's going to work. And he says that all of us, already in the the book, in chapter 2, verse 12, he already has told us that all of us are going to be accountable. Did you know that? Every person who has ever lived in this world is going to be accountable to who? To their creator. We went over this in chapter 2 and verse 12. I said it a little bit. Let me, let me take the time uh, to unpack this just a little bit. In chapter 2 and verse 12, he said, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Did you hear that? He says, so at the end time, there's going to be a judgment. Y'all look up here. I need you to hear this portion. All right, here it is. Here's how it's going to go down at the end times. Don't know it all, but generally this is what's going to happen. When all this is said and done, this world is passing away, there's going to be a series of judgments in the end. And what God is going to do is God is going to separate all humankind. He's going to separate those on the right and those on his left. He's going to separate believers from unbelievers. Then he's going to turn to those who are unbelievers, all right? And he's going to tell them, he's going to basically say, I'm going to basically do, he's going to judge their works. He's going to judge their sin. He's going to look, their sin is going to be exposed for all the world to be able to see. Then God is going to judge them, a righteous judgment, a good judgment. And what he's going to do is his wrath from that point on will pour out on them for the rest of eternity because of their sin. That's harsh. That right there is what we normally don't hear from the pulpit, but we keep squeezing in there because it's an important thing for you to be able to know. Here's the good news, bad news. Here's the good news. Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, truly born again, will not be at that white throne judgment, but they will be at another judgment, the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. The reason that our sins are not going to be judged and the wrath of God is not going to pour out for us is because according to Romans 8, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why doesn't the wrath of God pour out on us then? Because the wrath of God already poured out for our sins 2,000 years ago on the cross of Jesus Christ. This is amazing news, right? And so all of my sins... All of the wrath of God poured out on Jesus 2,000 years ago until the point that it was completely satisfied. It wasn't as though God's like, okay, that will get me through until the next time I have to ream them out. No, what he's saying is all of God's wrath is poured out on Jesus on that day so that there's no more condemnation for us. However, it doesn't mean that we're not accountable. You and I will be accountable. We are accountable for what? For our works, what we did or did not do in this life as believers of Jesus Christ. Now, let me, let me make, it, it's really kind of confusing to me. Is it okay sometimes I'm confused? I mean, you know that anyway, right? Okay, so, so I, I don't know exactly how this played out. Paul talks about it a lot in, in 1 Corinthians, and I've tried to go back and study this in depth. I don't think it's gonna be one of those things where we all line up and go, Mike, next, and the big screens are behind you, and all of a sudden, it's like, hey, he did this, and oh, I didn't know he did that, oh, yeah, I told you he wasn't who he said he was. I don't think it's that that's going on. I think what we're doing is God is looking all that he's entrusted you and I with, his spirit that he's given you, his salvation, his saving of you, his calling for you for the, for the foundations of the earth, him giving you a new heart, 
him giving you a new desire to follow him. He's getting the time that he gave you, the money that he's given you, the abilities and gifts that he's given you. He's looking at all of that, and what he's asking is, I went away on a long trip. I left you as stewards over my world to promote my purposes. What did you do with what I gave you? And here's what I think is going to happen. I think it's going to be a day of rejoicing and a great, of great sorrow for believers. Listen to me, for believers. 1 Corinthians tells us that there are going to be some people that are going to be saved as by fire. That means once God judges it, don't know how this works. Somehow by fire, God judges our works, and all of a sudden, if there's something left, God rewards us. If not, then there's a sense of loss for us. Here's what I think that sense of loss is. I think it's when reality hits you. Have you ever had one of those moments where reality hits, and you're like, whoa, right? See, you and I are not really living reality most of the time. You and I are not living in light of the coming judgment of God. Would you agree? We're living in light of the next sofa we want to pick out at rooms to go. That's what we're living out. Whole week, time, money, energy, hours on the internet, picking out the right fabric, a cooling agent for my back, the right, and we are working through this, and we do this every single week, and then one day, guess what? No more sofa. No more card, no more job, no more anything. You, God, complete and utter clarity that you and I have never had before. We stand before God and all of a sudden we go, oh, 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 God's that great. This is that judgment that we talked about. And what's gonna happen is some people, it's going to be great sorrow. Saved us by fire. Okay, great. We get to go to heaven. But God, I didn't do anything with what you had. It's kind of like this. I'm not going to say it about here. I'm going to talk about another church. This is, I'm being honest. In another church that I served at, sad when a pastor has to say, I'm being honest. Um, but anyway, but, but in another church I was serving, uh, I was very close to the financial desk. And I felt so bad for the financial secretary. Everybody feel bad for financial secretaries. Because apparently they don't know what they're doing. Um, this, this lady, uh, very well trained, she took copious notes of everything, everything that was given, every, everywhere it went, wonderful, just like our sweet Joyce. And so at the end of the year, you know how you get from the church or the beginning of the next year? You get how much you gave, right? And, and so they were, and it was interesting because I was real close to the office and I would hear people come and say this kind of thing. This is apparently wrong. There ain't no way that's all we gave through the whole year. There ain't no way. I talked to my wife. I said, honey, did we give more than this? Yeah, I think we gave more than that. Then we must have given more than this. Something's wrong. You must have missed it somewhere. And, and we, they'd have to tell them, I'm telling you, there's no way for us to have gotten this wrong. It's right. It's what they gave you. And they sat back and go, I can't. I remember hearing somebody say, I can't believe that's all we gave. See that? It was that moment. But then one day, now I heard this several times, and I'm not eavesdropping, just so that you know, office is right next to mine, and I'm hearing people bellyache, all right? And I hear one person come in, and they say the same thing. I'm like, oh, here we go again. They go, something's got to be wrong here. And they go, what do you mean? They go, there's something wrong with our giving statement. No joke, a husband and wife, this is what they said. We couldn't believe that this is what we gave. This is so much more than we ever thought that we could give Jesus. Are you sure this is right? We're sure that's right. And they left rejoicing because of all that they had given to him. It's the same exact thing that's gonna happen on that day for you, for me, for everybody. You say, why is that so significant? Well, it's significant for a lot of reasons. But here's one of the significance. He says, James says, anybody who places themselves in a teaching position 
will enact a stricter judgment than that. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know how to work that out. All I know is that it brings about me and should for every teacher, anybody that has influence, parents, I'm even talking to you, anybody that has influence to teach somebody else, he says that there is a greater judgment in which you and I are ultimately going to face. Now, why is that? A couple things. I think, first of all, I think it's a reasonable expectation that if somebody takes a position as a teacher, they're making the statement, I know something. Would you agree? Because if you're going to be a teacher, you're going to be teaching something. And if you're going to be a teacher of God's word in whatever capacity, you're saying what? I know the word, right? So there's, there's a general, you're, you're making a statement, I know the word, I'm going to teach it. Number two, God holds accountable everybody that is teaching. He wants us to teach clearly and accurately. You guys with me uh, on that, right? And here's the deal. There's a greater judgment because you have unimaginable influence on those that you're teaching, unimaginable, mind-blowing influence on those that you choose to teach the word of God. Now, I know some of you are sitting back and some of you are rolling your eyes going, dude, I think you're blowing this thing way out of proportion. I think, okay, then let me challenge you with this. You tell me what you know or believe theologically and biblically or what you don't know biblically and theologically that somebody didn't teach you. I guarantee Everything you know has been taught to you by someone. I had somebody say to me, he goes, man, I don't agree with that statement. I'm self-taught. I never went to school. I read a bunch of books. I go, who do you think wrote those books? Those books, you were learning through those books. Do you got that? How many times have I heard people probably in the last 10 years say something like this? Well, my, my old preacher didn't preach that way. What are they saying? I learned something from them. I believe what they believe because they taught me. Are you with me? So we can't underestimate this. I can't overemphasize this. The only thing I could be guilty of is underemphasizing this. And so let me come out to the to the other side. Here's some application. We're going we're to sum up all of this with these three points of application. Here it is. First of all, in light of that type of influence, knowing that there's going to be a judgment, here's a couple points. First of all, make sure that you know who you're listening to. Make sure you know who you're, whenever you listen to somebody, you're submitting yourself to their authority to be influenced by that person. You get that? That's what, that's what you're doing. Now, nowadays, it doesn't seem like anybody really cares who it is that they're listening to and submitting themselves to. Over the last 10 years, I've seen this huge movement only by the Christian, only by churches within the Christian community that seem to be de-emphasizing training in seminary, in Bible college more than ever before. It's kind of like this. I've heard folks, man, and, and, and they're prideful. Man, our pastor never was trained in any way, shape, or form with the Bible. Isn't that awesome? I guess. I, I, I guess. I don't know if you would have the same appreciation for your brain surgeon, right? Right? Dude, this is awesome. I went in here. He doesn't know anything. <laughs> he never went to school. He was never trained. He's just going to get in there and cut on there, man. It's awesome. But yet, when somebody's going to be messing with your soul and your eternity, no big deal. Now, before you get up to me, and I understand, well, what about this guy? What about this guy? What about this guy? I get it. There are wonderful men and women of God who, 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 who God is, they, they are self-taught. They, they've taught themselves. They train themselves. They, were, they didn't go to any kind of official capacity. I get it. I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking about trained. 
in the word of God, however ultimately that is. So people aren't picking people who they, they think are, are secure in, in what it is that they're teaching or, or have something to be able to say. You said, then what are they picking them on? Their looks? They're picking preachers sometimes. I know, obviously not this church, um, but, but they're, they're, they're picking people to be pastors because they have a great personality in the pulpit. Oh man, his personality is awesome. Look at him up there. He's so funny. All right, and the other person's sitting there and going, oh man, he's a great communicator. But the question is, what is he communicating? Well, listen, the reason we pick, the way we pick our churches now is if he looks good in a deep V and tight skinny pants, that's the pastor for me, all right? Let him get up there and to be able to preach. That's weird. Anyway, but, but anyway, do, 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 you, do you with me? So the whole idea here is that we need to be careful with who it is that's ultimately uh, teaching us and getting uh, before us. Now, here's the second thing I want you to, to, to think about. The second thing I want you to do is to pray for those who teach you. Let me, let me ask you this. I know you pray for yourself. I, I know that. I do too. But how many, without raising your hands, because if, if I see your hands, it's going to be so depressing, I'm going to throw myself, I'm going to end it all right here on the stage, all right? How many of you literally take time to pray for me or one of the other elders who are preaching during the week? because of the preaching of God's word. How many of you literally pray? Now, I know some of you critique very, very well. (laughs) But you might have to do less critiquing if you do a little bit more praying. To come into the house of God, not only the house of God, but even in your small group teacher. Look, some of you are sitting there going, man, I really don't like my small group teacher the way that they teach. Pray for him, man. Pray this way. Pray that God will use that person, use me, use Jimmy, use whatever it is, use Dan, Use all the elders that when they teach, that God will speak. And that we will speak, that the people will overcome an overwhelming sense of the Holy Spirit and they'll be changed. And that God will use them to change you. See, here's the key. We all learn from somebody else. And it's okay because it's how God has set it up. Sovereignly, he has chosen for you and I to learn from each other. It's just the way that it ultimately works. Pray for them. Here's the third thing encourage those who teach you. When's the last time that you encouraged your small group leader? Or somebody who teaches you in another way or maybe a one-on-one discipleship person that you just came to them and, and just said, man, I want to thank you so much. And I want to let you know that you're doing an outstanding job with leading through this material or teaching this class. Now, here's the hard thing. How do you encourage a teacher without blowing their head up, right? I know that's what you're thinking. All of you have said it. And I know by the way you respond to me. Here's how a lot of you respond to me. Hey, man, not to blow your head up, not to give you a big, fat, giant head so you can't fit through the door, all right? But, you know, that wasn't bad. That was pretty good, all right? That was a pretty good sermon today, all right? I just gotta let you know, by that point, there ain't no recovering. From the big, fat head comment, all right, all that, there's no recovering in that. Here's let me, let me just tell you this. Here's how you can encourage somebody who's teach, teaching you and pouring into your life. Here it is. Just go to them and just say this. And we, we all need it. But this will do it for the person with the right motivation. Just go up to them and go, just want to let you know, God spoke to me and is using what you taught in my life to change me. They don't have to hear anything about them. They don't have to hear any praise. If they hear any praise, it's because they're in it the wrong thing. All a teacher but the right motivation for the glory of God wants to hear is that God is being glorified through it. That's it. Now, I gotta tell you, um, I gave you three points of application, but did you notice that they're all about listening? 
Really, the text, though, is really about the one speaking, not the one listening. So here's the one. Let's get back to the listening or to to the speaking. Just remember that for all of us who teach, whatever capacity that it might be in, that you and I, Matthew 12, 36, I tell you on the day of judgment that people will give account for every careless word that they speak. I don't know about you, but that drives some fear into my heart. That's heavy. Which brings me to this. For me, preaching, and I think preaching and teaching, and you need to feel the same burden that I do, I believe, I think preaching and teaching has two things. It is both a blessing, tremendous blessing, and a tremendous burden. Let Let me just explain what I mean by that. The fact that God would allow... Me to preach the word or teach the word, whatever capacity it is, I understand what an amazing blessing that is. I, I want you to know that as a congregation, that I'm, I'm submitting myself to you. It's an amazing blessing to do that. It's not because I earned it or deserve it or smarter than anybody else. It's just what God has chosen. And it's an amazing blessing because it has been the very key to my sanctification to be able to go in and study the word diligently hour upon hour upon hour upon hour throughout the week is an immense blessing that is allowed and been the key to my sanctification of, of, of trying to become more like Jesus Christ. Thank you. Awesome blessing. But with that, amazing burden. Amazing burden. And so sometimes when I even preach about, when I talk about preaching or or, or, or teaching, I'm so convicted of it and I'm so earnest in it because I understand what's at stake. I understand that when you come into the house of God, souls are in the balance. If I'm teaching somebody privately, souls are in the balance. And, and, and that it can go one way or the other. I know that it's ultimately dependent upon God, but God uses us to impact other people's life. You guys got that, right? And so as we come and as we teach, I understand that if I get it wrong, many of you are going to get it wrong. I'm leading you in the wrong direction. If I get it right, praise God, there's at least a possibility of you going in the right direction. There is, there is, I can't escape the burden. I'm just going to tell you this from a preacher's perspective, and I imagine it's got to be for you guys that teach each week. Sometimes, man, you just got to get out from underneath it. I can't escape it. It's every day, every morning, every night. I'm not, I'm not sobbing. I'm telling you, I think anybody with teaching should feel the same sense to some level or another, to feel the burden that they're entrusted by God to teach other people the word of God. Dads, you need to lose, lose some sleep at night because of that burden with your kids. I'm telling you, I can't get away from it. Friday comes, Saturday comes, it's always there. I get done on Sunday just relieved just enough to be depressed and then have to be able to wear it again, all right? Uh, here, here's a little bit how it looks. I think this is a great demonstration. I think this is for preaching and for teaching. Here's the burden we need to feel. So descriptive for me and my life in, 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 in preaching the word. It says, there is no special honor in preaching. Love that. I'd say teaching as well. There is only special pain The pulpit calls those anointed to it as the sea calls its sailors. And like the sea, it batters and it bruises and it does not rest. It does not rest. To preach, to really preach, and I would say to teach, to really teach the word of God is to die naked a little at a time and to know each time you do it, you must get up and do it again. 
I think it's a great picture of the burden every single one of us need to have when it comes to preaching and teaching the word of God. Did you know that it's so hard because, and it's such a burden because it's such a dangerous time. Have you thought about our services? You know, there's no more dangerous time than when we get together and we're taught the word of God. No more dangerous for me or for you. You say, well, wait a minute. I, I work with electricity with a basket 40 feet up in the air working on power lines. You think that's more dangerous? This is more dangerous than that? Absolutely. You lose your physical life there. You can lose your spiritual life here. What I mean by this, not that you can lose your salvation, but what I mean is this. So much is at stake. Every time that I preach, the obedience in which God has called me to do, I am putting myself in danger of the judgment of God for saying something that's wrong. For you, you're in danger. Because just as I will give an account for every word, you will give an account for every word that is spoken. So it's dangerous for you because you either obey or you disobey, leading you to that final judgment. It's huge. It's huge. And I'd say, how do we end this? I, I just think that, hey, man, I know some of you, afterwards, even joking about it, I understand people are going to joke. I say all this to say we desperately are in need of teachers, godly teachers, people who study the word, people who will just, just feel that burden of conveying truth, right truth to other people. We need more teachers. Many of you have been in it long enough. You know enough to teach We need teachers with children. We need teachers with nursery. We need teachers with small groups. We need parents who are teaching their kids. We've got to teach. We're calling you up in light of that warning and the reason for that warning to sit there and say, I'll teach. I'll do what God calls me to, but always in light of the coming judgment. Does that make sense? Always in light of the coming judgment. For some of you, let me just say this. The, the gospel was spoken. Did you remember where the gospel was? I directly beelined to the gospel. It was when I said that one day there's gonna be a judgment, two judgments. One is if you apart from faith in Christ, the wrath of God will pour out for you for all eternity. But the good news is for those who are in Christ, for those who have repented of their sins and by faith accepted what Christ did on the cross for them. Remember that? That for them, there's no more condemnation. That's the gospel. Some of you today need to embrace the gospel. You need to repent, and you need to believe. That's the call today. I'm going to ask you if you want to stand to your feet. Our musicians are coming at this time. We're going to pray. Will you respond? Jesus, we love you.